So I'd like to offer some reflections tonight on a very important in, uh, teaching in Buddhism, uh, one that I have found very helpful, and I, I hope you will as well. Uh, and that is the teaching on conceit. Um, and the Pali word for conceit is mana. Um, while there's a lot of different translations for it, that's uh, uh, usually the one uh, that uh, kind of is entered into the mainstream, conceit. But it really carries with it a, a, a different kind of connotation than maybe we use this word in, in our language. And, and so uh, I just want to suggest that you take some care and find the word that works for you. It really carries this connotation of measuring and, uh, or measurements, uh, things of this nature. One tends to measure oneself uh, against others, or to compare oneself to others, or even to compare ourselves to ourselves at another time. <laughs> you know, the way I was and the way I will be, this kind of thing. So it, it's got the, it runs the whole gamut. And the Buddha describes it as follows, and this is from the Anguttara. He says, uh, there are these three kinds of conceit that are to be abandoned. And what are the three kinds of conceit to be abandoned? Conceit itself the inferiority complex, and arrogance. These are the three kinds of conceit to be abandoned. Uh, And these uh, three forms are often described in a more colloquial, contemporary way as sort of better than conceit, and that's mana, or worse than conceit, omana, or equal to conceit, atimana. And the teaching says that we need to abandon these. We need to find a way, to, that we need to see them, first of all, and in a way from within them to discern what's going on there and over the, the months and years of practice to uh, eventually abandon them. And it's pretty straightforward, if you ask me. You know, it's pretty direct and straightforward what he's saying here. So, you know, most of us are quite familiar with um, this, uh, the, just the, the better than conceit. You know, I certainly remember hearing about it through in my youth and, you know, being cautioned against thinking it better than anybody else, that kind of thing. Uh, it loomed uh, large. That's, that's what I call the kind of garden variety of conceit. But, you know, if you're like me, this, uh, these other two, <laughs> the worse than or equal to conceit, was something new. You know, it's not something I had heard before uh, coming to the Buddhist teachings. Uh, and so this is really calling for a broader perspective. And, and I think just that point right there merits a little bit of reflection, you know, because if it was just uh, conceit, uh, this, uh, this sense of feeling that you're better than somebody, well, that would be one thing, but it's not just that. It's, uh, it's really, this whole teaching is trying to get at, um, not that I think that I'm better than, but that I think I'm anything at all. <laughs> you know, that, that there's a basis here, that there's a, the whole... Uh, experience of conceit or the formation of conceit uh, presumes a self right out of the gate and and it goes on to comparing that self to other people or to other conditions or other um, ourselves at other times and and so um, it's one of those things that gets it's very slippery it's one of the last things to go in the process of waking up because we don't see that first presumption there that I am a self and I'm better than worse than or less than you know so I think it's a, it, that it's a very significant teaching in Buddhism, as you know, because uh, the teaching on non-self is so important. So the point of this practice, then, is just to become familiar with this and uh, all three ways and to look at them 
and to see them in our experience. And, uh, you know, as I said, I think it, it, it's helpful to find a word that works for you. I like to think of comparing because that word conceit is so loaded and starts to get in. It, it pulls for a certain sense of self, you know. So really to see it more as a, as a comparing and to catch when we're doing that. You know, that, that sense of, yeah, I see that, I see that I'm doing that. <laughs> I, I see what they're talking about here. So, for example, when we're talking about um, better than, that better than conceit, you know, just to have that, that sense when, you, when you're doing that, that, that and uh, to, to just uh, impartially, um, without any kind of uh, tag or view or opinion about it, to just go something like, like, like wow, look, I, I, th- I really think I'm better than that, better than that person. That's, what, that's what's going on in my mind. I'm, I'm forming thoughts that suggest or imply that I'm better than them. Or um, I, I, I tend to, one of the ones that, that uh, you might see even more frequently is a sense of setting yourself apart. You know, we, we all do that uh, in subtle ways. You know, I, I don't sit over there, I sit over here. You know, there, there's, a, there's a funny little something going on in there that we want to be able to see. Or omana, the worst then. Um, this is that sense of, wow, you know, I, I'm really putting myself down here. I'm, I'm really doing some self-denigrating thought, you know. I think I have some major flaw. That's, that's the kind of thinking that I'm noticing in my mind. Or, you know, that, that I'm the one who isn't getting it. And everybody else is getting it. Isn't that interesting? That's, a, that's an interesting thought, <laughs> I want to be able to see that. What you know, and, and start. We over the time, over the years of practice, we start to pick this stuff apart and see it. And basically, I think one of the ways that it, we're, it over it's overcome is that the data don't support it. Eventually, we begin to see that. Or atimana, the equal to. You know, this I, I often feel this one is sort of this hand on my hip kind of thing. You know, who do they think they are? You know, I know what they know. What are they acting like? They're the only ones that know, and I know that stuff. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, we we all know these things, yeah. And there there, um, there there can be a sort of a little barrier or shield to that allows us to get in there and acknowledge it. Uh, and, and that shield itself is the, this little bit of us that believes it, you know, that is still so caught in self-view. So, you know, you know the self, when, you, when you're really locked solid in the sense of self, you, know, you don't want to die, you know. <laughs> you, don't want that, you don't want that sense of, of, of yourself to go. And so that, that lingers for a while. So just noticing See if we can get in there and notice this stuff. And, and noticing it is hard enough on one hand, but it's greatly enhanced by developing a, a capacity for um, impartiality. This is why, you know, uh, both Caroline and I have been talking about equanimity a bit. You know, just uh, really recognize that the value of this quality of heart. It's a quality that doesn't have a view about what we're seeing. that doesn't have anything to say about it. Now, this is this is greatly enhanced. Uh, great, this capacity greatly enhances our ability to see this because it feels very personal, <laughs> and it feels like a condemnation. It feels like a denigration itself. Seeing that I have self-denigrating thoughts can feel like a denigration, you know. So you can feel how tangled and, and thick it can get very very easily. So just just be honest and say that um, 
this might take some time. You know, this, this is a, a, a process of being able to see this habit of mind and work to overcome it, to abandon it, as the, the Buddha encourages us. And retreat is just the ideal setting for it. I know I keep coming back to this in so many of my reflections, but it's so true. You know, to really, I really want to encourage us all to make full use of the simplicity of the context of retreat. Because this is hard enough to see in retreat, let alone, you know, in, in daily life, when things are all stirred up and there's lots of supports for believing these kinds of thoughts, you know. So use the simplicity of retreat and look for it in the simplest things. You know, they are, are, uh, the, the simple activities that we go uh, through during the course of the day. So, uh, I, believe me, I hear all kinds of stories and I have plenty of my own stories to, <laughs> to talk about too. Um, and, and so just to encourage us to, to look. Some, some of these may be very familiar, some maybe not, because you don't do it or because... Uh, you haven't seen it. Um, so, for example, when, you, when we're entering into the Dhamma Hall and, and just uh, noticing, you know, I know we're not supposed to look at each other, but we all have our ways, don't we? <laughs> we, know, we know what other people are doing. We know how they're, they're conducting themselves. And, and so uh, we be, just notice, just begin to see how these thoughts will arise about that. You know, there'll be some, a lot of it's view, but a lot of it's conceit, you know. It's, it's, it's a comparing going on that, uh, you know, what's the matter with them? Why do they have so many blankets? Why do they have so many cushions? Or, you know, that they, they've taken up three spots and they're only supposed to take one. You know, what's, what's going on here? Uh, this, these kinds of thoughts. And so, um, you know, just to, uh, I want to say that it's not an indictment, but if you aren't aware of these kinds of thoughts arising in the mind when you're coming into the field of other people and uh, their activities, then uh, I, I submit you aren't seeing them <laughs> because everybody has these kinds of thoughts. Yeah? So we might think that their posture is bad or, you know, I, I know how to sit, I sit better than that, that kind of thing. Or, you know, one that I hear uh, a lot, and that happens a lot in meditation halls, is when you get this yogi who has incredible endurance and maybe comes into the hall and sits and, and uh, sits all day, you know, in the same spot. You know, it doesn't appear to be flinching whatsoever, you know. Uh, and, and watch the mind go, well, how are they doing that, you know? And comparing ourselves, I want, I want to be able to do that. They're doing it and I'm not, that kind of thing. You know, one time we had this woman at the, uh, one of the monasteries, I was there for the winter retreat, and there was a, a Thai woman who had uh, amazing endurance, or apparently so, who knows, right? <laughs> she would come in the hall at one o'clock and in the afternoon after we got all cleaned up from the meal, and she would sit there till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. We usually sat till midnight on retreat. And um, apparently not move. You know, it was a big buzz in the kitchen, you know. <laughs> so, did you see her? <laughs> this kind of thing. But, I mean, who, you know, the, the, what's interesting in something like this is you do not know what is going on with them. You know, but the mind will compare and diminish self or exalt self if you... Uh, in one way or another, uh, to come up with some kind of comparing in relationship with them. 
You know, I mean, they could be in la-la land. I mean, I don't know about you, but when, certainly when I've sat long retreats, one can get very good at looking the part, you know, and you could be sound asleep sitting there. You know? <laughs> and people are coming in and looking at you and thinking that you're better than them. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? It's really crazy stuff. So we compare ourselves. And usually when we do, we're the one that's coming up on the short end of the stick. But, you know, uh, it really doesn't matter what it is that they're actually doing. The thing that we want to be able to see is what we're doing in relationship to it. So we can evaluate the equipment. You know, I can remember one time there was this gal who had, she came in with a beach chair and a, a mattress, you know, and it, and it was like, a, you know, I don't do that. You know, at least I don't do that. You know, that kind of thing would go on in the mind. You know, the, the blankets and the cushions. And uh, we evaluate what people wear, uh, how they walk, where they walk how they eat, what they eat, how much they eat, all of this stuff, and compare ourselves to this kind of thing. Again, look and see. You know, this is subtle stuff, and when it starts to get busy, like especially in the dining hall, that's when you can miss stuff like this. And uh, we want to be able to catch it. Uh, Just be aware of the the things that are going on in the mind around all this, how we compare, and how we exalt ourselves and disparage others. And if we believe these kinds of thoughts and, and don't see them, then um, we probably don't even know we're doing it. Yeah? And this, is, this can get very subtle, this kind of stuff. You know, I once spent the better part of a retreat just um, denigrating a, a woman who was on the retreat because uh, I, didn't th- I didn't like the clothes she wore. I thought they were inappropriate for the retreat setting. <laughs> and they weren't modest enough and they were too flashy you know she didn't understand I understand I understand the way that one should address oneself on retreat or another time then I was very distracted by someone who had fabulous clothes <laughs> oh man <laughs> you know she just had the best stuff for a retreat it was just so appropriate it was, it was soft layers and beautiful soft, quiet colors and, you know, baggy and things like this. And this, not, not catching that, what I was doing there, you know, that bit that wanted those clothes and was comparing myself. Why don't I have clothes like that, you know? I got off on this fantasy. And, uh, you know, uh, I was designing uh, a, a, a meditation fashion wear, you know, <laughs> <laughs> for, out, for who knows how long. It was a very long time. I, I even had a name for it. It was called Freedom Wear. <laughs> it was for men and women, not just women. And there were great fabrics and um, subdued colors. Definitely having shoulders covered, knees covered, all that stuff, you know. Lots of big pockets, <laughs> lots of really loose clothes and big, big skirts that you could sit in cross-legged without, uh, you know, losing your gracefulness and all of that. And then and they, there were even the, like these big pockets so that when you went to the food line, if you wanted to get an extra banana or an apple, you know, you could do that. Or the pockets that you could rest your hands in because walking meditation, it gets, you know, they get so tired you know, when you're hanging them all the time, you know, it was, oh, it was, it was great, great. And then, I mean, I finally came to when, so, somewhere when I was um, uh, doing the, cater, the catering menu 
and the refreshments for the grand opening of my stores <laughs> in San Francisco and New York. <laughs> you know, that's how far it got. <laughs> Just out, who knows? I mean, it was a really, really great fantasy and uh, really lost in it. But it all started from comparing my clothes to her clothes, you know. And, and uh, that's how it went. It, it's crazy, these crazy little attachments. I mean, these are mine. Yeah, you know, I give myself away. These are the kinds of things that pull me in. You have your own, you know, and if I asked you for those kinds of stories, you, you would have them, I'm sure. They might not be these, but this is what we want to be able to see. So watch what goes on in the mind in the dining hall. You know, like I said, we're not supposed to be looking at each other, but we know what's out there, don't we? And, and we're having views about it and opinions about it and comparing ourselves to it all, all, all uh, often um, throughout the course of the meal. So, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm not trying to be funny or, or critical with all, all of this stuff. We, the, the idea here is that we want to spotlight this. We want to be able to see um, uh, more precisely what it is that this mind is doing the way that it's uh, conceiving and relating and how we are buying into these uh, thoughts. You know, uh, usually, often, most of the time, we're completely identified with this kind of stuff. And they really do have better clothes than I do. (laughs) They really don't know what they're doing. They really do eat too much or whatever the mind is doing. So again, I'm I'm not uh, uh, trying to be funny or, or critical here. Uh, although, you know, you have to admit over the years of practice that, that it, gets, it gets very entertaining after a while when you start to notice how the mind is doing this so much. And, uh, you know, especially once you get accustomed to uh, seeing it and just have a little bit of perspective on it. It's so transparent, you know. It's, it, you, it, you can get some real giggles out of it, you know. It's like, oh, you really, you really think you're better than that one, huh? That's really interesting, you know. And, 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 but we want to see it because it's painful. It's painful stuff when we're lost in it. And, and perhaps this is really the, the most practical reason for becoming aware of it. Um, when, when we get caught up in it, there's a, there's a lot of suffering that goes on with conceit, with comparing, uh, it, it's not just that when we're lost in the comparing itself, which is suffering enough, but it's like what happens on the heels of it, where that kind of thought, uh, what, what it becomes the springboard for, where it can take us, and the proliferation that gets born out of these kinds of thoughts that we don't catch, we aren't seeing them. And, and think about it, within these three dimensions of retreat, of, of, of conceit, that, that sense of, being better than, less than, or equal to, is uh, really a, the, the, probably the lion's share of the kind of suffering that we have to endure. Yeah, it's, it's all pretty much right there. So maybe just the general proliferation, like I said, how it's the kicking off point for fantasies and imagining. But um, right within those three is the aversion and the jealousy and the envy, and the resentment, and the fear, and the exalted sense of ourselves, and the diminished sense of ourselves. You know, can you feel that? It's, it's all proceeding from this, this uh, formation in the mind that is not seen as, a, as such, and is believed and um, uh, bought into. We move into it. 
So we can form all kinds of views and ideas about people uh, that really have no basis whatsoever in reality. Just through this comparing. I mean, have you ever, you know, when maybe not so much here because you don't get to talk to each other in the coming and going, but when you go on retreats where you have that integration period and you get to talk to the people that you've been having views about for the last 10 days, you know, or that you've been comparing yourself to for the last 10 days. It's very interesting stuff. You know, if we know how to use it, you know, if we don't turn it back on ourselves and beat up on ourselves for it. So there's that, there's the painful aspect of it, just that, uh, that, feel, that experience of being lost in that way and where it can take us. But there's really even a, a deeper and more profound reason for, for seeing conceit. You know, as, as I was implying uh, a little bit ago, there's, this, is a, this is the big player, man, in the giving rise to the sense of self and perpetuating it. As I said, we don't see that presumption of a self, <laughs> that and uh, and yet then the, the the comparing thought is embedding that, is entrenching that deeper into the psyche, because not only am I a self, I am one who is better than, less than, or equal to. And so, whether it starts with a view of me uh, that I measure against you or it starts with a thought about you that I'm measuring against me. You know, either way, we're strengthening a sense of self. And we want to be able to see this. Because and, and, in very short order, what can happen is you start to feel bad about yourself, if it's a less than, or you start to feel exalted, you start to feel really good about yourself. And what gets missed in, in the whole thing is that we just made it all up. <laughs> We just created it, we just constructed this reality, moved in, and then felt bad or good about it. And it's like, you know, what? <laughs> you know, that's why I said the transparency of it is, is so obvious when you start to just scratch the surface of it. You know, it reminds me of that old wonderful Zen story where the, the monk goes into his cave with some paint and, and he paints a picture on the wall of a ferocious tiger. And then once the painting is complete, he goes running out. He's terrified of it, you know. <laughs> he goes running out of the cave. But that's what we're doing over and over and over and over again. You know, we're constructing a view, a self-view, a view of others, and then reacting to it. And, and that's our, I mean, come on, let's be honest, that's our world, <laughs> you know, a lot of the time. So, you know, it, it's, and really what's underneath it all is it's just a lot of thinking. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, proliferation about impressions, likes and dislikes, and views and opinions and all of this. Uh, and yet um, we're, we're creating this world where we're better than, worse than, or equal to. And um, we, we vacate the premises of the real world <laughs> and move into this one. It's wild, isn't it? It's not... It would be okay if it was a fun world, but it's not, you know? (laughs) It it stinks a lot of the time. So now, you know, when you think, when you look at it like this, you can see how things get very complicated very quickly. Because uh, now I not only have me and myself, I have you and yourself. And, you know, it's all getting very, very complex and 
I have a lot more to deal with than just the simplicity of what's going on right here, right now. You know, my world is you and me and how it all measures up. No wonder we're in pain so much of the time. So we're, we're not only comparing in relation to others, we, we compare in relation to ourselves. And this is an interesting one to catch because this is one that we uh, believe for a long time. You know, these, these kinds of thoughts where I say, I was getting it and now I'm not. Or I understood things and now I, I seem to have forgotten them. You know, why, why can't I always be the one who remembers, <laughs> who understands? I want that me. I want to be that person. So we're uh, solidifying something in these kinds of moments that, that isn't solid, that has no substance, it has no basis in reality. It's just thoughts and ideas, right? That are rising and passing away in each moment. And, and besides which, the truth is, and this is the way practice goes, I mean, maybe you were getting it and now you don't. <laughs> maybe you did understand and you forgot. That is 100% normal. That's the way practice goes. You know, it's, it, we're, we're turning something around. We're turning this massive ship around in a, a complete 180. You know, you have to know that that is a process that is going to go and have ups and downs and take time to stabilize. So um, given the nature of delusion uh, and given the um, instability of the awakening process as it's unfolding, um, that's the way it's going to go, you know. You're going to remember, you're going to forget. And, and I think one of the big helps in, in my own practice has been just getting used to that. <laughs> you know, it's absolutely in the, in the realm of normal uh, and the way that it goes. And if you're seeing it, your practice is going really well. That's, that's, an, that's an A-plus moment. And, and so um, for every one of us... Um, Conditioning is such that we, we each have our own brand of denigrating and exalting ourselves. And, and so I guess the question here is, you've got to ask yourself, <laughs> do I, do I want to believe these kinds of thoughts? Do I want to keep believing them? You know, and if not, then it's, it's, it's incumbent on us to notice them for what they are and take a deep breath, let the, let the inhale rise and pass away and let the moment rise and pass away and let go just stop believing these kinds of thoughts and, and over the years of practice just watch what happens when you do believe them because we will you know, do the before, during and after <laughs> watch what happens when you don't and, and let the mind do its own sorting you know, it just, it just needs the data that uh, tell it where, you know, where it wants to be. Is that where I want to be? Or is that where I want to be? So one more piece of it that's really important. This is, um, uh, this construct of the mind, or activity of mind, conceit, is... um, one of the big obstacles in the process of waking up, you may have heard the teaching of the Samyojana, the ten fetters. And these are, um, you know, obstacles or 
defilements, uh, wrong views, uh, things of this nature that um, stand in the way of liberating the mind. And they get um, uh, uprooted gradually over the years, the process of, of, of waking up. And um, this one conceit, interestingly, is, uh, is one of the last ones to go. <laughs> And I find that very interesting. First of all, that I, f- I find that encouraging <laughs> because, you know, I can relax a little bit around it. It's not going to be uprooted tomorrow. Um, and, and so that's, I find that very helpful. But, um, you know, when we say that it's one of the last to go, um, I find it very interesting that one of the first things to go is um, the wrong view of self. Now that's a puzzle. You know, how could that be so? The, the wrong view of self, Sakaya Titi, we see through um, the, the habit of the mind that is constructing a sense of self. And we see that, very, we see that early on in practice. You know, we're at different, uh, in different ways, everybody in here is, be, is beginning to see that or well along in seeing that, that this mind is creating a sense of self in relation to what's happening and living life through that. <laughs> You know, instead of just um, seeing that construct and, and not buying into it. So that's one of the first things to go. And it's often said that um, it's, it really forms a, a very firm foundation for practice because it forms a basis for non-attachment. <laughs> you know, it, it, who's grabbing? You know, there's nothing to, there's nothing to grab, that kind of thing. Uh, and so uh, what the, this model of the samyojana, the ten fetters, is suggesting is that uh, while that one goes very quickly, this sense of comparing self to other is one of the last things to go. Way, you know, maybe way, way later on. <laughs> maybe lifetimes later. Who knows? You know, it could be in this lifetime. Maybe not. So this is a good thing to, to contemplate. At least I have found it helpful because it seems to be saying that understanding what goes on in the construction of a sense of self is only part of what transpires here. That's one thing. And, and it also seems to be saying that the sheer force of this habit to compare myself to others is so deeply entrenched <laughs> that it keeps going on. Even after I, I know, I've seen through the sense of self. I've seen, seen through uh, self-view as a construct. So that, I mean, I find that helpful, you know, to consider that, uh, okay, just relax. This is going to take some time. You know, it's encouraging to, to think of it that way and to find the patience and, and the uh, endurance that goes along with this whole process, you know, uh, full realization will take care of itself. And don't be too quick to pounce on myself when I am comparing myself. That doesn't say that I'm not seeing things clearly from the vantage point of um, seeing the construction of a sense of self. So, I mean, I find that helpful. I hope you do too. Um, so these, these three activities of comparing, better than, worse than, and equal to, they are solidifying our sense of self over time. And um, one has to come to the conclusion after watching it that it is 
almost entirely unnecessary. There's one instance where it's, it, it's uh, useful, actually, but it's almost entirely unnecessary. <laughs> There's nothing uh, about comparing that, that serves us in any way. Uh, it's just that the unawakened mind is constructing a, a world where I exist and I measure up in this way. So it's helpful just to try to imagine uh, what it would be like when these kinds of formations in the mind or thoughts either don't come up or you're able to see them, you're able to catch them such that they just rise and pass away, they just move on through. Uh, And and in this way we can uh, really reduce or eliminate a tremendous amount of our suffering because we're not doing that. We're not stuck in that self-absorbed thinking uh, that is born not only out of self but as self in comparison with others. Fascinating stuff. So just um, a, a few suttas that I found really helpful with this process and in terms of how do you work with this? You know, how do you see it? Uh, and interestingly, there's this one sutta that I came across that is that exception where it's the, the um, usefulness of comparing. And it's one of these beautiful suttas where uh, Ananda, who was the, quite, the champion and the teacher of the nuns, um, is teaching one of the nuns. And um, he, uh, he says uh, this, he's, uh, he's teaching her and he actually says, it is by relying on conceit that conceit is to be abandoned. You know, the first time I read that, it was like, what, 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 what? <laughs> you know, that can't be right. Uh, and you can imagine the nun maybe reacting in the same way. But, but he goes on to tell uh, her a story about a monk who hears about another monk's attainments. And instead of feeling badly or feeling jealous, he says, that bhikkhu named so-and-so, with the destruction of the taints, has realized for himself with direct knowledge in this very life, the taintless liberation of the mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he dwells in it. And that monk thinks, that venerable one has realized nibbana. And his next thought is, well, so can I. (laughs) I love that, I got goosebumps, you know. (laughs) I love that. It makes it real somehow. This, this is comparing, isn't it? But it's a, it's a kind of comparing that lifts us up. And I think of it kind of in, on a par with, or it may even be a kind of sympathetic joy, you know, where you go, oh, oh they did it, they did it. Oh, I'm so happy. Huh, it can be done. I can do it, you know? And, and that inspires us and lifts us up in our practice. And it's a great realization. And as the story goes, it's like one of those great Zen stories that continues to, to say that sometime later, in dependence upon conceit, that monk named so-and-so abandoned conceit and realized nibbana. So I like that. So if you're going to compare, <laughs> compare in this way. Compare in a way that lifts one up, is, is happy and excited about the accomplishments of others. And and, and uh, uh, knows that therefore it can be done. 
So in, an, in another sutta, we get a little help on this topic. And um, this one is from the Udana, the Megia Sutta. Some of you may know this one. It's a very, very significant one about perception. Uh, and in here, we see that the contemplation of impermanence is one of the primary tools that we have for overcoming this habit of mind. And here's what is said. Uh, the perception of impermanence should be cultivated for the removal of the conceit I am. For when one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is established. And when one perceives non-self, one reaches the removal of conceit I am, which is called Nibbana, here and now. So just to, to think about that, you know, why, why would that be so? Um, the contemplation and, and realization of impermanence, as we see that, and see if this is true for you, for you and your practice, as we begin to awaken to that and realize not only the possibility, but the probability, or maybe ultimately the reality of impermanence, you know, that, that continuum that we move along in practice, as we see that, then we begin to see, realize that this is the nature of the body and mind. This is the way they operate. And if I think I am this body and mind, and they are constantly rising and passing away, then it's not a huge leap to realize that uh, this uh, sense of self could not exist in any kind of permanent or substantial way. So it's for us to see that. Just to, These are deductions in a way, but they're directly observable uh, through our practice. Uh, and this is why we uh, see over and over again throughout the Satipatthana Sutta. You know, if you're familiar with the Buddhist teaching on the, on the meditation practice, there's this refrain that keeps appearing over and over again. He gives the teaching on the body, and then he gives a teaching on feeling, and he gives a teaching on the mind, gives a teaching on mind objects. And then this refrain occurs or is repeated after every section. And part of that refrain is saying, it's, it, it's almost like it's saying, it's not enough to see the body as the body. See it arise and see it pass away. You know, get, to get in there and observe directly the um, uh, changing nature of physicality. To do the same thing with feeling. To do the same thing with the mind. And, and if, if you do that repeatedly, you know, you, you, one can't sustain this sense of permanence or the sense of self. It just doesn't hold up under that kind of um, observation. So uh, what the Buddha is doing here through the Satipatthana Sutta is, is directing a profound non-attachment, a profound capacity for non-attachment such that we see that everything in the body and mind is rising and passing away. Very, very helpful. So there's nothing to grab onto. There's nothing to compare to. Just allow, uh, find our, our posture, if you will, our perspective outside of all of, all of the, the grabbing and the uh, identification and the assigning self to what's happening. And we know, we know what that's like because we're meditators. <laughs> You know, we get glimpses, don't we? We get inklings. You know what it's like to stand free, even if only for a little while. So here's another one that, uh, I really liked this one. I hope that you find it helpful too. 
This is another one of, uh, on perception, um, the Sanya Sutta. And the, the, here the Buddha is noting that uh, as long as we remain uh, steeped in delusions of permanence and self, we won't feel peace. You know, and it sounds like a, and, you know, an indictment. As long as you do that, you're not going to get free, you know. <laughs> but I don't think he was waving a finger when he said this. Um, because uh, seemingly, uh, you know, in the next bit of it, seemingly by way of encouragement, he says that if, if this is the case, if you don't see impermanence, if you don't see non-self, that is, if you're still lost in the, the delusion of that, he says, in a kind of very matter-of-fact way, it sounds to me, what you should realize that you haven't developed yet in this way. And, and this realization will help you focus where you need to focus. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, but if it's, if it's like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do that? Why am I not seeing it? Everybody else is seeing it, and I'm not seeing it. Then you got issues, right? But just to, to know and observe and uh, see the way it actually is. I don't know about you, but I just love that. I, I find that very, very helpful. And, and so it, it reflects a point that I keep dri- driving home with meditators, and you've probably heard me say it before, um, and that is to, to see and accept the extent of our ignorance. It's, a, it's like it's a baseline. You know, you've got to start where you are. And, and, and again, if that comes across as a uh, denigration or uh, an indictment, then you're lost, you're back in the soup. But if we can hold it with a certain amount, amount of impartiality, it's like, oh, I don't see clearly. <laughs> it's actually very liberating. <laughs> it actually feels really good to, to get that. Oh, and you can feel the interest. You can feel the enthusiasm just arising. It's like, oh, I get it. That explains everything. You know, it's like, and, and lose lose any trace of arrogance or you know self denigration or self aggrandizement that that might arise. And just see it like this. And, and so if, if we, if, I think what he's saying here is, is that if you realize that you're seeing impermanence or seeing non-self but maybe doing it from an intellectual level, then that's good to know. <laughs> you want to know that, you know. Uh, and uh, it, it means that we need, there's some work that we have to do. And we want to find out, well, how do you see that directly? That, that if you can feel that, again, it just, you can feel the interest and curiosity, and, you know, if, if practice isn't interesting, you know, it, it can get very, it, it's just very boring, you know, turn it around and go, what, how is this happening? What do I need to do? How, how, do, how am I going to see this? And, and so how do we develop that sense of impermanence and non-self? How do we see it? Again, it's back to the foundations of mindfulness, that sutta, that teaching that the Buddha is giving us there, see the body as the body. Well, good luck, you know, that's hard to do. See mind as mind, see feeling as feeling. Watch it rise and watch it pass away. I mean, the profundity of these, <laughs> this teaching can really escape us, you know. Give it some thought and really think about what he's getting at there. 
wow, that is a radical transformation in how I'm usually looking at this stuff, you know. Just look, just try to get in there and see it uh, with some semblance of non-attachment. And and trust, I mean, we're putting our faith in the Buddha. And, and, you know, that took a while for me. I don't know about you, but I would scratch my head and, and... in meditation and just, you know, hope and pray the Buddha was right, man, because I wasn't getting it yet, you know, and, and just, but hang in there, stay with it. So there's a lot to it, right? Simple little topic, oh, conceit, you know, better than, less than, equal to conceit, but man, it's a deep one. And uh, it, uh, obviously, uh, can take us all the way to freedom, literally, <laughs> understanding it and uh, uprooting it. And so here's this, uh, this uh, one uh, last sutta that uh, I found that, uh, oh, I just love this one too. Uh, this is from the Nguttu Nikaya, uh, and I found it very, very encouraging. It's another one where Ananda is talking to the Blessed One. Uh, then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Bhante, could a person obtain such a state such that one would have no eye-making, no mind-making, an underlying tendency to conceit in regard to this conscious body? Bhante, could a person obtain such a state such that one would have no eye-making, no mind-making, or underlying tendency to conceit in regard to all external objects. And could one obtain such a state, uh, such a state that he or she would enter and dwell in that liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, through which there is no more eye-making, mind-making, or underlying tendency to conceit for one who enters and dwells in it. Could a person obtain such a state? And the Buddha replied, one could, Ananda, one could. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope some of this is helpful for your practice here. Let's just sit for a moment. So let's close with our sharing of blessings chat. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.